0: plushcare.com slash weight loss this is the vice guide to right now your inside look into the best of vice it's wednesday may 8th i'm sophie cases today we're talking with vice news journalist tess owens about why it's so hard to charge white nationalists with terrorism This year, a U.S. Army veteran who expressed support for the Islamic State allegedly planned to build a bomb powerful enough to kill 50 people at a white nationalist rally in California. Also this year, an active duty U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant stockpiled weapons and allegedly compiled a lengthy hit list as part of an effort to establish a white homeland. While both of these would appear to be cases of domestic terrorism, Only one of those men will face terrorism charges. So why is that? Well, in the U.S., federal counterterrorism laws are mainly built around the danger posed by foreign terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS, rather than threats coming from American citizens. Meanwhile, the threat of far-right extremism is persistent and growing. The Soufan Center, a research center focused on global security issues, identified far-right extremism as, quote, the most serious terrorist threat facing the U.S. So why don't our laws reflect this current reality? I invited Vice News reporter Tess Owens into the studio to find out. Hey, Tess, how are you? I'm um, good, thing. thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming into the studio and talking about your piece. So after 9-11, the U.S. government obviously made huge efforts to track foreign terrorist groups like al-Qaeda, and, and now they spend a lot of energy thinking about ISIS, but in that time they seem to have paid less attention to threats coming from within the US. Um specifically I'm talking about far right extremism and white supremacist terrorism. So is that right? And if if that's the case, why do you think that that
1: is the counterterrorism infrastructure as it is today is not equipped to really deal with threats coming from the inside or posed by Americans? far-right terrorist groups that operate mainly inside the US.
0: So to explain why this is and kind of what's going on here, why that infrastructure is not in place, can you talk about the two stories that you opened your piece with? There were kind of two parallel cases that happened that were cases of domestic terrorism, but only one of the cases. Is actually seeing terrorism charges. So the the first is a U.S. Army veteran who wanted to bomb a white nationalist rally in California, um, he said, as retribution for the New Zealand mosque attacks. And an, an important part of that story, as you write, is that he allegedly expressed support for ISIS. And that person is currently being charged for terrorism. The second story that you compared that to is a case where a U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant had stockpiled weapons and allegedly compiled a long list of Democrats and journalists and other people in an effort to establish what he you know a white homeland sort of he's a self-proclaimed white nationalist that person Christopher Hassan has not been charged with domestic terrorism so Parse through this for me. Why one and not the other? What is
1: going on here? So Christopher Hassan was arrested in February for gun and drug charges for ordering synthetic opioids from Mexico and then being an addict in possession of a firearm. He has not been charged with domestic terrorism because there isn't really a law that he could be charged under. Prosecutors said that, you know, they filed documents saying that look, we think this guy is really dangerous. We have all this evidence that we think leads us to believe that he is plotting some sort of mass terror attack, targeting journalists, Democrats, and all with a sort of intent to start a, quote, race war. But there are there is no law that he could be charged under, because the law that the US Army vet was charged under, it's called providing material support to a foreign terrorist group. That law, um, the the providing material support to a foreign terror group, is really important because the foreign terror group is defined by a list kept by the State Department of I don't know how many groups, but all the groups that are have been added to that list in the last decade have been Islamist or you know violent jihadist groups known that are far right terrorist groups. So because that the U.S. Army veteran said that he would support or 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 did support ISIS, that means that he can be charged under that law, whereas Christopher Hassan can't. Why is this the case? Because we know
0: that far-right extremism is a persistent threat in the US, but it's also growing. You know, We see that more and more, and our
1: laws don't seem to match up to that reality. I think, first of all, so experts have told me that, one, th- there isn't maybe much of an appetite to sort of go after far-right extremist groups and it also gets complicated because especially when those groups are sort of trying to mainstream their ideologies, it gets really murky about who is in what group and um, who isn't. So there's free speech problems Mm -hmm. as well. And then some sort of like civil liberties groups like the Brennan Center, their view is like, you know, the war on terror was a disaster. It resulted in just sort of surveillance of Muslim communities and these sting operations, just because we shouldn't want to even the playing field. That shouldn't be our impulse. It should be to, to actually realize that, that the war on terror was bad and that we shouldn't try to replicate that whole infrastructure around this new threat. Gotcha. Another thing that got brought
0: up in your piece is the fear that if there was sort of an overarching law created to address domestic terrorism specifically it could be abused to target protest groups like Black Lives Matter or Antifa and it would be kind of like stretched and malleable in that way. Can you talk about whoever you spoke to who was expressing that concern was was talking
1: about? So the concern is For it to be abused, basically, they would have to change the law. As it stands right now, the foreign terrorist group list, there's rules about it can only be added to the list if it operates outside of the U.S. If they change that law so that they could start going after domestic terror groups operating in the U.S., then that opens the door potentially to a situation where you could have a government who says, hey, I don't like, I don't know, Black Lives Matter. I find them a nuisance. Let's designate them a domestic terror group. And that just gets – it could be potentially murky in all sorts of ways.
0: Yeah. Another element of this is that – is President Trump. Let's talk about mm-hmm. him for a second. Mm-hmm. So under his administration, we know that this kind of far-right extremism, white nationalism is become quite visible, is growing. And yet the president has actually slashed certain programs dedicated to combating this type of domestic terrorism – What are the programs that he slashed? And what are the narratives coming out around that um, from from the Trump administration?
1: So the Trump administration rescinded funding for countering violent extremism programs. And one of them was, I believe, Life After Hate, which is run by a group of former neo-Nazis. And they go out and and try and de-radicalize people who've joined white supremacist groups, essentially that is just one example but it's also I I think you know he was asked recently after the New Zealand attacks about whether he thought white nationalism was a problem and he sort of shrugged it off so there doesn't really seem to be that much appetite to deal with it the FBI director kind of disagreed with him recently and said that actually no we do think it's a very 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 severe and persistent problem I think that's what he said Mm -hmm. and then there was also a recent hearing on white nationalism and the rise of hate crimes, which was kind of supposed to be, I mean, one of the things they were, in theory, supposed to talk about was whether the laws are equipped to deal with this rising threat and be an opportunity for lawmakers to hear from, you know, experts, survivors of hate crimes and all that. And it, and it got pretty derailed, as a lot of people wrote about and covered, by some of the witnesses called by Republicans. But there's, a, there's, a, there's another hearing on this, actually, this week. Interesting. So two
0: politicians, Senator Dick Durbin and Representative Rick Schneider, are two of the people who have been saying, you know, our laws aren't equipped to deal with this threat right now. And they're trying to reintroduce the Domestic Terror Prevention Act, which failed uh, two years ago. Why did it fail two years ago? And Sort of what's going on with, with those two politicians and is there backing for this legislation? And, and if it were to happen, I mean, do you think that it would be
1: sufficient? I don't know why the legislation failed in 2017, uh, but the, it was reintroduced after the New Zealand attacks. So there's a sort of new momentum behind it. It does stop short of calling for the creation of a new domestic terror law, but it does propose a number of measures to like data like an improved data collection a special committee to assess the threat of uh, far right extremism an annual report because you know at the moment we basically rely on sourcing from from journalists or nonprofits like SPLC or the ADL or or universities and there's no actual centralized data collection so it's actually quite difficult to understand how to quantify the threat mm-hmm. Do you think that it'll pass? It'll pass the house. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about the I don't know about the Senate. The problem is is that the recent hearing on white nationalism and hate crimes was pretty shocking and disappointing in a lot of ways because it's, it is a serious issue and people are being killed. And whether or not you think it's the most important issue, it's still a concerning one. And that just sort of devolved into a bit of a farce like it didn't seem like they really thought that this was something we should take seriously whatsoever.
0: So maybe I should have started with this, but I'm curious, what is the FBI's current definition of domestic terrorism? Like what are,
1: what kind of realm are we working within here? So the FBI does have a definition of domestic terrorism, which was signed into law as part of the Patriot Act in 2001. It currently doesn't have any criminal penalties, but the definition is, if a federal offense is committed with the goal of achieving one of the following outcomes, which is intimidating or coercing a civil, civilian population, influencing the policy of government by intimidation or coercion or affecting the conduct of government.
0: I guess what I'm what I'm gathering from your piece is that, you know, we have this set definition, but there's no overarching federal domestic terrorism law like there are smaller laws that address very specific threats like um, you mentioned spreading smallpox and attacking a power plant those are situations they're narrow situations but they get declared as examples of domestic terrorism but other than you know certain specific situations like that something like you know the example of um Christopher Hassan it doesn't fall under any kind of criminal penalty and like you said you know he was charged with ordering illegal drugs online and I think ordering a an unlicensed gun silencer so the the intent to murder a large group of civilians based on a white nationalist ideology was sort of not really a part of the case so Did you talk to anyone who had ideas about what an overarching law might actually look like?
1: Yes. So um, there are two people. So Jason Blazakis, who was in the State Department, I talked about him before, and then Mary McCord, who was a a former assistant attorney general, and she's now at Georgetown Law. They have created or drawn up what they think is a roadmap for creating a domestic terror law. And it would be basically taking that definition, um, the FBI's definition, and then making it a federal offence to commit one of the following acts, I think kidnapping, assault, murder, a a few others, with the intent of intimidating a government or coercing a civilian population. But it would leave it at this kind of broad definition of domestic terrorism rather than a specific one. So that might also help them charge someone like Christopher Hassan, who doesn't really appear to be affiliated with a group, Right. With something like providing material support to domestic terrorism, which is what, similarly to what the, the the U.S. Army vet in California was charged with. Gotcha.
0: So one thing I've been thinking about while you know reading your reporting is there's this distinction legally between domestic terrorism and foreign terrorism. You know we saw that in the two examples that you started your piece with. One person was charged with terrorism. And one person wasn't. And that was because they were affiliated with or allegedly affiliated with a foreign terror group. But it, you know, it got me thinking about post 9-11, all of the surveillance we saw on American Muslims, um, you know, American residents and citizens who were Muslim and all of the kind of harassment and, you know, Islamophobic violence that ensued because of that. It made me think, you know, is this really a distinction between domestic and foreign counterterrorism, or is or is there more here about race and religion and sort of which groups the government chooses to target and surveil and track and prosecute? Well,
1: uh, after the New Zealand attacks, counterterrorism experts kind of came to a consensus, which some have been saying for a while, which was that far-right extremism now pose a global terror threat, and that's because the, the shooter, alleged shooter, put up a manifesto that basically revealed a very intimate familiarity with a lot of the key ideas and propaganda and conversations happening within, like, far-right groups in Europe and in the U.S. Yeah. And I think that there's also a lot of growing connections between groups in Europe and in the US. And for example, the UK government designated a group called National Action, a neo-Nazi group, as one of their terror organizations. Mm-hmm. And then that group, some researchers have found suggestions that they might be linked to some groups in the US. Yeah, If the US went ahead and was like, hey, we're going to designate National Action as one of our foreign terrorist groups, that could open up... I mean, I think anyway, it could open up a way into cracking down on some groups who are trying to forge these international ties.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, you know, how different our laws are around domestic terrorism, you know, far right extremism, white supremacy, as compared to other countries, European countries who are seeing the same kind of
1: rise
0: in that type of ideology and violence. How do they compare
1: I actually looked into that after the New Zealand shooting and especially after Trump made those comments that sort of shrugging off the idea that mm-hmm. white nationalism was a threat and looking into sort of the resources we've cut in the US compared to other countries. And it seemed like in, Germ- well, in Germany and the UK specifically, they have put so much money and resources and staffing into combating far-right extremism that it paralleled or almost paralleled how much money they're spending on fighting groups like ISIS in their own countries, mm-hmm. which I think shows how seriously that, you know, countries that are meant to be U.S. allies, yeah. are taking the threat. And that's really, really worrying to a lot of counterterrorism experts because they sort of feel like the U.S. might be dropping the ball a bit. Yeah, that it's sort of like
0: a blind spot for the U.S. So in your piece, you, you talked about how, you know, as far-right terrorism in the U.S., becomes more frequent and more deadly. Experts and politicians that you talked to, some of them were, you know, worried that the U.S. was lacking the tools we need to fight this. And I'm curious, you know, we've talked a lot about the legal tools, sort of the blind spots in our legal system to address domestic terrorism. But did anyone you talked to talk about other kinds of tools, whether it's cultural or, you know, you mentioned the, the de-radicalization nonprofit? Were other people sort of thinking about and investing in how to get at the root problem of the growing threat of, of white nationalist ideology in the U.S.?
1: Not so much the root, but there are definitely other elements. For example, Uh, white nationalists' ability to congregate on mainstream social media platforms Mm -hmm. and organize events on Facebook and, and share their propaganda on those sites. Facebook and Twitter have been in trouble over and over again for sort of being a little bit behind the eight ball when it comes to kicking off A lot of those groups from their sites and actually I think it was Motherboard who had a really really brilliant scoop recently about where they got some internal conversations uh, at Twitter and where someone asked you know why we did we did such a good job at kicking ISIS off our platforms why can't we do the same thing with white nationalists and uh, some person at Twitter said well if we did that then we'd have to start cracking down on far-right politicians or right-wing politicians Mm -hmm. because they sound so much like white nationalists sometimes or white nationalists are trying to sound more mainstream.
0: Right. Yeah, we've had Jason Kebler and um, Joseph Cox and um, Lorenzo Franceschi-Bicari of Motherboard on this podcast a lot. And like you said, they've had some really amazing reporting and breaking stories on that exact topic.
1: Some of the other tools, I guess, yeah, the, the the DRAD programs for sure... Um, there's a lot of interesting, quite innovative ones in in Europe that they're experimenting with, and some of them. Some of it is about taking the infrastructure that's been used uh, to de-radicalize kids who are getting sucked into ISIS or be, trying to be recruited by, by by those people, and repurposing it for this threat. Because mm-hmm. a lot of it really is the same, I think, in terms of what happens to your brain when you're being radicalized by an extremist group,
0: right? So to end this interview, you know, there's a lot in your piece. It was like, really, there was a lot for me to parse through. We were really in the weeds legally and just thinking about everything that encompasses this issue. And you tackled it really well in your piece. But to go back to the beginning to talk about Christopher Hassan, you know, we're sitting here recording this. For our listeners, you're listening on Wednesday. We recorded this before. And right now, as we speak the terms of his release are being decided on by the judge. So, you know, when this episode comes out, when you're listening to it, you know, there's there's information that we will not have known when recording this. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what we might
1: hear and what it all means? Two weeks ago, a judge ordered Christopher Hassan's release because the judge said that the prosecutors had basically not filed the appropriate charges needed to justify holding him in custody until a trial date is set so on Tuesday they were figuring out what his release might look like, you know, will it be, you know, will he wear an ankle bracelet or will it be some sort of supervised release, how often he'll have to check in and all of that um, so so that's that, that's what we are sort of due to find out in an hour or so
0: Yeah, well Tess, thank you so much. This was, you know, jam-packed with, with heavy and important information, <laughs> a lot to parse through. But um, I'm looking forward to reading more of your reporting. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. You can read the full story at news.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.